Cloudways is a managed cloud hosting platform that simplifies the web hosting experience for agencies. The platform offers complete peace of mind and allows agencies to focus on their growth with 24 7, 365 support and very easy to use features. Cloudways is launching its agency partnership program that is designed to help agencies grow to new heights. Please visit cloudways.com slash en slash agency and join the program to get access to extended technical support, discounts, and co-marketing opportunities with Cloudways. That's cloudways.com slash en slash agency. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Paul Miller, and he is the MD, the Master of Decibels at Miller & Smith. And if you are even remotely interested in how to make your agency and your work for clients stand out in a sea of sameness, this is the podcast for you. It's an absolutely brilliant masterclass on all things differentiation, brand building, and agency growth. I can't even begin to tell you how good the conversation is. I've honestly never had anyone on the podcast like Paul. He's just very honest, very real about what it takes to build brands and build agencies. He's not your typical agency owner in any stretch of the imagination. He says agencies are so bad at differentiation. That's essentially what they're selling their clients. But you only have to look at a typical agency owner's website and they all look alike. And he has a really good point. Um, yes, why is that the case? Uh, just take a look at the homepage of their website and you'll know exactly what I mean when I say differentiation. He says 89% of the work out there is just bland and ignored. Uh, he shares some of the ways that he stands out and his agency stands out in a sea of sameness. They've done some really breathtaking and impressive work and they're really punching above their weight as far as a creative firm is concerned. Look, if you are interested, even a little bit, in anything to do with how to make your creative work stand out, the lessons and pitfalls of growing a creative services firm, and how to hire and recruit and find the best talent out there for your agency, then you will find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. By the way, this episode is brought to you by Cloudways, one of the leading managed cloud hosting platform services out there who simplify the web hosting experience for agencies. Check them out at cloudways.com. Without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Paul Mella. Paul Meller is the master of Decibels at Meller & Smith. They make brands famous and says he is the loudmouth of the company. They work with brands who know the power of difference, who want to light a fire and be memorable. Brands who want to be famous. Clients include the likes of Amazon.com, Expedia, Emma Mattresses, Ikea and Bionic, to name a few. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Paul Meller, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Yeah, thanks for having me on, mate. Absolute pleasure having you on the show. You've got a very unusual entry route into the agency world. You've had a lot of agency experience. You got fired from a lot of agency jobs. You had a lot of influences in and around sort of beer drinking. (laughs) Yeah, the pub. (laughs) (laughs) Explain how you got your start in the agency world. So I, uh, I went, I was at school. I always enjoyed art and uh, and drawing and being creative making things whether that be like 
you know, sort of uh, design technology, so like woodworking, metalworking, or arts, you know, sort of painting clay, you know, uh, making things out of clay, all that kind of, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I really enjoyed writing, although I did get a U uh, in my English GCSEs, uh, so I perhaps wasn't the best writer, but I did used to enjoy it. Um, and then, and then after my A levels, I went to university. I went to Loughborough University and studied design. I did a four-year course and it was a sandwich one. So my third year, I worked for a, an agency in Loughborough uh, called DM, and they were a sort of point of sale uh, sort of in-store experience agency. And that was my first sort of experience of agency land. And it was mad because it was run by a, a dad and his kind of five sons. And they all used to just fight. Uh, and there would like there would be sort of genuine, you know, like fist fights, and 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 that I was so this is fucking brilliant, and uh, then uh, that really sort of lit the fire in me. Went, uh, went finished off my university, and then came out of university, and I thought uh, that all of that disappeared, and I just kind of went to the pub. <laughs> um, I didn't really get it. I didn't get a job. I, uh, you know, and then I, then I worked in pubs, you know, I worked all sorts of different types of jobs. I worked in factories, warehouses, uh, yeah, I was barman for a while. Um, I was the, uh, the attraction on Hindus, uh, you know, uh, on uh, certain things. And, and it just, I just sort of did a bit of everything. And in between some of those, I worked in agency land as well, worked for a few agencies, uh, but sort of generally bummed around for about five years, just lived on people's sofas and, mm. and went to the pub at midday. And, and the people that you meet in the pub at midday are brilliant. Honestly, they're, they're the at midday. At midday, they're some of they're some of the most fun, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, some of the most fun, interesting people, and and it's. I was just bumming around, really, uh, being a bit of a dosser, and, and my parents weren't too impressed. And well, no, yeah, like you know, I don't think they they're not really that impressed as it is even now. Um, and uh, and then I ended up working in a. Uh, ended up being a seasonaire in a ski resort in France and just bumming around and like just working in bars and just, yeah, being a dickhead really. And then met my wife, my now wife, and she said, this is bollocks. You've got to go back to London, hold down a job. Like, you know, you've got to be like, be a bit more of a grown up. Right. Um, and she's an artist. Uh, so <laughs> it's not like she was like, you know, go and put a, a suit bit. on. Yeah. Like she was just like, just, Maybe just hold down a job for more than a couple of months. It's the basics. Yeah, the basics, because I was getting fired all the time. And then, um, yeah, so I moved back to London uh, with her and held down a job for a year, which I was really, I was really pleased about. I was like, shit. Uh, and that was working for an agency out in West London. I don't think they're around anymore, Blue Gem. Designing a lot of advertising and uh, sort of product design. It was all around fashion and, and sunglasses and sort of eyewear in general, really. It was all sort of fashion orientated. And then after a year, I thought I'd done my dues. I'd held down a job for a year. So I told the guy to sort of piss off, you know, the guy that owned it. I thought he was a bit of a dick, to be honest. And yeah, and kind of went out in a ball of flames and then set up Miller and Smith. Really interesting. Okay, love the answer. I've got a lot of questions to get through. So <laughs> if it's going to take this long for each one, we might be here a while. But I love, I, I love it. Okay, next question. I'll be quicker. <laughs> so tell us how you go from bumming around to setting up Miller and & Smith and then explain how the business has grown over the last few years 
and tell us about some of the significant milestones along the way. So, yeah, I left my job, the job I was at previously, the agency, and went out in a ball of flames, like I said, and didn't take any clients with me. They were very good at telling all of those clients don't work with Paul, he's a dick, he's like screwed us over, you know, which was all a lie. Mm. Because what happens most of the time when people set up an agency, they kind of take a client with them, they sort of take their favorite client and they, and then they build an agency around that client. And we didn't do that. Mm. So I woke up with a stinking hangover and then realized, shit, I've actually got, I've told everyone I'm going to set up an agency, so I've got to do it now. So set up Meller and Smith and literally just put 400 quid in a bank account and just got on the phone you know and that's the same bank account we have today and it it, you know 12 years later it's grown it's grown really well but those yeah those early few months that sort of 400 quid was enough to pay you know the internet and the phone bill for a few months and just kind of got on with it there was no sort of glamour you know, I just sort of sat in my pants in my wow. in my living room and and just fucking harassed people. Started cold calling. Yeah, just harassed people. Wow. Who was the first client that you won? Do you remember? A very unmeller and Smith client, to be honest. <laughs> um, quite posh, very sort of high end interior design label um, on the King's Road, hmm. uh, and we were doing some some bra- we did some branding work and sort of visualization work for them. It must have been desperate. <laughs> Yeah, they were desperate. I was really desperate by then. You know, it was a couple of months in, it's and I was match. starting to think. Yeah. But yeah, like you know, the bit of fear is a good thing. Mm. You know, like sort of drives you forward. Definitely, really interesting. So, so that was the first client that you that you won, and then just give us some of the most significant milestones over over the years, and, and give us an idea as to kind of where you are now in terms of revenue, employees, locations. Just give us a yeah idea of where you are today. And what significant milestones you've had along the way? So we've, it has been a roller coaster. Those first five years after setting up, we just took on everything. Mm. We needed the work and we chased work really hard. And, and actually, you know, if we're being honest, the work wasn't that great. Just sort of took the check, banked it and it was hand to mouth. It really was. And so that yeah, first sort of five years were not great, really. And, 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 and then after five years, we started to talk about risk-taking and the quality of work and the, and the appetite for creative or the creative intent um and a couple of years after that we we started take fucking risks the event series which then over the years has, has now grown considerably and you know we've been getting over 400 people to an event you know uh, this is before covid obviously um 400 people to an event you know uh, after work thursday evening uh, in London and they've been really good for us and that and that to an extent kind of put us on the map I suppose um, it was a really good way of showcasing what we bring to clients mm. and that was the sort of the intention of it but also to challenge the industry to be better I think we kind of we've got a good story to tell there because we weren't championing the industry in those first few years we just kind of just doing where doing uh, kind of whatever the client told us just try to stay alive and 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 now, you know, we, we, we champion that creative intent and, and the work is a lot better for it, mm. I must say. But yeah, so 12 years is, is, almost sort of, wow. is almost sort of split in half. The first half being just, hard. yeah, really, really hard, hand to mouth. And now Amazing. it's, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's, you know, we've got a bit more of a reputation. We're a bit more stable in that respect. We uh, people know what we stand for and what and clients know what they get from us. We have a decent track record. So yeah, so I think you could almost sort of split our 
12-year history of the agency and sort of thus far into, you know, into two. That's really interesting. So what made you make that change? Because as you said, for the first five years, it was sort of hand to mouth and it was really hard and you were trying to stay alive. And by the way, you say five years, that's five years, that's a long time. <laughs> yeah. It's it's like you say it and it's like, it's quick. Five years is a long time to be struggling, not struggling for, but like working really, really hard, hand to mouth. What made you make the change? Like, what was it that came into your life at that time to say, right, something has to change and we have to evolve the way we do things? I, um, I had my first child. Uh, so I had my daughter. Mm. And that was, I didn't want her to, <laughs> I didn't want her to look at the work I was doing and be like, that's a bit shit, dad. Mm, interesting. <laughs> you know, it, you want, I wanted to look at a body of work and be proud of it. And I really wasn't, and neither was Jim, my business partner, the Smith of Mellow and Smith, and and yeah, it, it, that was the that was the catalyst for us to think like this is not the way we should be doing things. I think things have been bubbling away up until that point, but that was the you know that was probably the 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 straw that broke the camel's back. Okay. And from that moment, I've now got three kids. I'm just, yeah, no, no more, absolutely no way. And Jim's got a couple of kids now as well, and yeah. and I think that can be. So I think it kind of forces you to think about what it is that you do and, and why you do it and kind of what it says about you as a, you know, as a parent, you know, as someone that you, you want your kids to be proud of you. Yeah. So yeah, that was definitely coincided. And I th- I'm pretty sure it was the catalyst. Really interesting. So, so let's talk a bit about the business in more detail. So you deliver a lot of brand work and advertising work to your, to your clients. What's your approach to delivering work that in your words, doesn't suck and really helps propel the client's business forward? Yeah, we're really, really clear about the services we offer and then the, the goods, you know, like the stuff that they get. So the services we offer are brand and advertising. They're the only two disciplines we work in. We don't work any wider than that. And we're really clear about that. And I think clients like, they like to know what services you offer. I think the days of the, you know, in inverted commas, the full service agency are, are probably gone. I just think clients are savvy enough to know that they can bring agencies together, you know, sort of experts in a number of different fields. So we offer brand and advertising uh, services. And, and then it's, what does the client get? We build, we make brands famous. So mm-hmm. largely we work with brands that aren't the number one in their market. I mean, we do work with a couple that are the biggest in their market, but mm. Mainly, we'll work with people that aren't the largest, people that need to get to the top spot, you know, knock the number one off their perch. And that's what we do. And we make them famous. We build fame. And that halo of fame filters down into a whole host of different things within that client. You know, I think one of the things that the advertising industry isn't very good at doing, or the creative industry as a whole isn't very good at doing, is selling the benefits of what we produce beyond just the marketing department you know clearly the marketing department is sort of client number one you know within a brand within a within the client but the benefits and the sort of the soft benefits of good creative and really good advertising and and the kind of services that agencies offer can have a really big impact on lots of different areas of a business. And, and I don't think as an industry, we're particularly good at selling that. And so, you know, we're always very keen to make sure that clients understand that. What are some of the soft benefits? Yeah. So for example, like, let's say you as a brand become a lot more famous, you become 
uh, a lot more famous to the wider public, you know, way beyond your, you know, your, your target customer. Mm. Well, it's a hell of a lot easier to hire. It's a, probably a hell of a lot cheaper to hire. Mm. It's a hell of a lot easier to um, hire the best talent because they, the best talent wants to work for the biggest and best and most famous and fastest growing brands, mm. right? Well, if you can be, you know, on the lips of the public, then you can have a much better, that's, that's one example. There's, there's a myriad of them. Mm. It's crucial that as an industry, you know, we're able to, to portray that. Otherwise, you know, we get pigeonholed and, and you know, the likes of, you know, the, the, the management consultants are very good at selling a myriad of uh, different services and, and telling brands, you know, the, the, well, the essentials of, of this world, you know, they're quite happy to muscle in on the, advertising space and, and i don't think we're really kind of doing ourselves any justice by just letting them do it to be honest that's really interesting what you're saying essentially is that like by creating fame there's no wastage in that because to the spreadsheet kind of left brain thinking cfo they're thinking that if we do advertising you know this big brand campaign if it doesn't target exactly who we need it to target then there's a lot of wastage out there and you know what's my roi but what you're saying is that by creating that fame, you touch so many other people that you didn't even intend to, that that also has its own benefits and those things should be cherished and valued as well. Yes. Am I understanding that right? Yeah, you are. I mean, that isn't the reason to build fame. Like the reason to build fame is sell more widgets, you know, whatever it is that they sell, right? Right. Um, but there are benefits way beyond selling more widgets mm. uh, to, to, to fame. I also think that... If we live in a world where the CFO, the, you know, the, the MBA, the, mm. the left brain thinking, the very logical thinking person, spreadsheet it, spread, the spreadsheet yeah. jockey is, is in charge, mm. then we're, you know, we're in trouble. Mm. You know, you can't, it, it, Rory Sutherland talks about it quite a lot, you know, just because something is measurable doesn't mean it's worth measuring. That's it. You know, just because... You want to avoid wastage doesn't mean that it's, you know, like, oh, like you, yeah. the, the, there has to be other metrics of which to assess mm. whether something is worth doing or not, other than, you know, did it make all the lines on the graph go up? <laughs> right. You know, I'm not saying that isn't important, but that cannot be the only metric by which something mm. uh, is decided upon. That's the alchemy of, of great marketing. Great yeah. book again. Yes, good book. So, so I, love, I love the campaign that you did for Mango Bikes. Um, explain for the listeners what it was and maybe talk us through how it went from idea to execution. So Mango, we, yes, we, we have two sort of services around advertising. We'll have a fiery halo or a burn brighter. Burn brighter is for big businesses that are already relatively well known, but want to change things up. You know, maybe they're in sort of two, three, four, fifth place uh, uh, within the sort of market share. And we have fiery halo for people, really small brands that are not known, know they need to do something but don't know what it is. Now, Mango Bikes came to us. They'd been trading for a few years. They generated, you know, good sales, but, they, you know, they had a really good product. Their product is sort of ultimately customizable bikes. So you, you, there's 6 million different color combinations that you can make these bikes. And it basically looks like, a, you know, a rainbow is thrown up on a bike. I mean, it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Absolutely love it. And it's, um, it's a wonderful product, really, really well done, uh, really well put together. But they didn't know how to, what, you know, what the step was in how to advertise. And so we, we did a fiery halo with them. And, and that ultimately give the outcome of that is a number of potential sort of campaign 
ideas and sort of routes that they can take over a 12 month period. So get them out into the market, get them advertising so they can see the benefits, but also do it in a way that they feel comfortable that then it's not just like a one flash in the pan thing. You know, there's, there's a plan over a 12 month period. And that's what we did with, with Mango and it proved really successful. Chose one of the ideas to go out with first, which was a really good outdoor and social media campaign. No fluff, just colorful bikes. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a decent media by the art direction. It was lovely. The, the, you know, the, the, the headline it sort of said everything about they, what they needed to do. And it was really, really effective mm-hmm. at driving awareness and consideration. So the uh, volume of branded searches on Google, because mm-hmm. they're a D2C brand, so they don't sell through a retailer. So clearly branded searches on Google is an incredibly uh, important metric for them. Traffic onto the site and ultimately number of bikes sold um, went through the roof. Interesting. Um, you know, we're talking serious numbers. They sold, you know, they sold like a million quid's worth more bikes in London alone over the over the campaign period wow. to what they were uh, what they were doing previous year and able to map that alongside. This is where data is important. I'm not a huge data guy, but when you're looking at the effectiveness, you know, uh, mapping that against activity that was going on elsewhere in the country at the time you know what were they selling compared to last year compared to other parts of the country at the same time as the campaign going on it was a it was a london centric campaign mm. you know million quid is not to be sniffed at for a company of their size sure and it's you know advertising has transformed their business really fascinating and the team at mango really understand what they have to do in order to stand out because there are some huge bike brands you know big global Goliaths, and they have to take on those guys and they have to take them on. They have to invest in creative and being memorable, being different. Because these big Goliaths, they can just outspend them. Mm. You know, they they just got much deeper pockets, much bigger you know, sort of levels of awareness and 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 retail chains and big logistics sort of networks and these all these things that you know that they're fighting you against. Yeah. And so they have to fight. Mm. As Charles Saatchi uh, says, you know, uh, creativity is our last legal advan- uh, last legal unfair advantage. <laughs> and Mango are a really good example of a brand that have accepted, you know, sort of understand that and believe it, and, and have sort of invested in that uh, as as a, an advantage for their brand and how to take on the competition. So in that case, then it sounds as though it was relatively easy for you to sell in that idea to them when you took that concept to them initially how did they respond well it's never like it's never easy <laughs> you guess <laughs> it's never easy you made it sound as if it was they're just nah, mate, piece, open to ideas piece sure, of cake. Paul, let's do it <laughs> nah it's never easy it doesn't matter whether uh, somebody is a huge brand where you know they can afford to cock it up and they're spending budgets or if it's a small brand and they can't afford to cock it up and you know the CEO spending their own money because you know it's it's their company. It doesn't matter. People still need to feel comfortable in the decisions that they're making, and you know that comes down to trust. You've got to trust the guy that's, that's telling you this is the right thing. And if you don't, then it's always going to be a much harder sell. I've always found that being one hundred percent honest is the only way to build trust with clients. I just think people can see through bullshit. You know, I think they always have been able to. I think it's, it's even easier these days. I think just if you're just honest, even if it's something that the client doesn't want to hear, 
you're just straight up about it and you just say, look, this is the way it is. Mm. I think people, that goes a long, long way and it builds trust mm. and it can build over the long term. We've had some clients for, you know, 10 of the 12 years that we've been around. So, you know, some of them are very long standing relationships mm. and that's built up over years of, you know, sometimes uncomfortable conversations and being honest with them and holding a mirror up and having empathy with their situation and not just looking for the quick buck. Okay. So you talk about this idea of holding a mirror up to your client and also holding a mirror up to the industry, because you say the fact is 89% of work out there is ignored, guff, vanilla, wallpaper, bland, mealingness. Tell us what you really think. <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, that's some IPA research from a few years ago. But yeah, the average Londoner is subjected to a thousand ads a day across all different media touch points: TV, radio, social media, whatever it would be. Across them all, and of those thousand, eighty-nine percent of them are forgotten immediately, and only four percent remember positively, seven percent remember negatively. So, as an industry to produce the word that we produce and 89% of it not to work is a joke. I mean, that is horrendous. Can you imagine if 89% of the buildings that, you know, an architect designed fell down? It's a good point. There'd be outcry, but somehow it's okay if 89% of advertising done work. I don't understand. Just don't, don't get it. And people that don't have that at the front of their minds continually, like scaring them. This is how difficult it is to get someone's attention then they're going to produce vanilla work because they think it's easy and it's not mm. it's really difficult to get somebody's attention and it's even more difficult to take that attention and turn that into fame brand building you know sort of uh, mental availability as byron sharp would call it like being on the lips of the customer and you know that's really difficult and you you have to be scared that you're going to be ignored in order to produce really good work i think so what's your process for creating really good work then? Like, how do you do that for your clients? Like, what is, is it art? Is it science? Are you guys just intuitively good at tapping into the zeitgeist and understanding what is going to resonate? How, what's your formula or your process for creating work? There's no zeitgeist, that's for sure. Because zeitgeists are trends okay. and it's bollocks. I mean, it's just fucking right. meaningless guff. <laughs> Ultimately, it comes down to getting really good people in the room together. And that's why COVID is, you know, is, is hard, isn't it? Because you can't get people in the room together. And the, the, the rub of creativity is people getting together. And we, we work in duos, you know, old fashioned copywriter, art director duos for the best work to happen. Those two people often have to be in the same room together. It can be replicated over Zoom and the like, but it's not the same. It's never the same. But yeah, really good people given time will come up with really good work. It's really, that's, I mean, that, that sounds so simple, but that's the answer. But does it matter who those people are? As in their background, their experiences, their, their track record, does it matter who they are? So the talent component of this, you, you can't just get anybody. No, really good. On the creative side, that means people that are a pain in the ass. <laughs> it means people that are curious. It means people that don't settle. They're constantly asking, asking questions, asking, you know, is this work good enough? Can we push it further? Is that the, is that the best we can do? Is that the best angle that we can find? Whatever that, you know, they, they're going to be curious, inquisitive, pain in the ass, mm. but they're, they're going to be brilliant and they can be old, young, they can be 
you know, from the, you know, the back streets, they can be from the poshest school in the country. It doesn't matter. Talent is talent, you know, and, and uh, we will always go and try our best to go and find talent and invariably actually find talent when other people aren't looking, which I really like. I think is, can be really powerful. In terms of like the process, what yeah. to do with those people, creative side of things, you've got to give people time. You know, there's a quote, and I can't remember who said it. George Tannenbaum quoted it, but it wasn't actually his. And it's, you've got to stop writing with your fingers. And what they were getting at there is, stop giving yourself half a day to come up with a killer campaign. And then you just write with your fingers. You've got to give people time. And I get it that clients are always pushed. You know, they need things quicker and cheaper and you know like i need it yesterday type thing i get it you know i get that there's that pressure but equally you know measure twice Mm. cut once like do it properly first time round. then on the on the uh, account sort of a client services account side of the business you know you you don't want quite as many pain in the ass people but you need people that have a backbone you need people that will uh, tell it straight to clients that will yeah, that have been sort of been been around the block and uh, you know, have worn a few scars. That's really they're the best at you know at client services, and that's where the client wants to feel like they're in safe hands. Okay, you know, and and people that have yeah have, okay. have kind of worn a few and have kind of rolled with the punches a few times. I mean, bizarrely, this is our second recession, which is fucking weird. You know, like I mean, like we set up in two thousand nine in the middle of the credit crunch, and now we're in another recession. You know, like. And, and, and you kind of see, I've seen a, a few clients and, and sort of the old guard, you know, freelancers, you know, people in their sort of 40s and 50s saying this is, you know, it's like my third recession, you know. Um, whereas if you're 25, it's probably your first, you know, and mm. it just takes time to build these mm. skills. Really interesting. Okay, so I'm going to take you back to what you said earlier around you find talent where people aren't looking. Explain. I don't understand why agencies, and maybe agencies don't do this solely, but I don't understand why people just go to like LinkedIn. It, well, yeah, LinkedIn. But no, why do why do they just go to creative courses at universities oh, to I their see. you know to their open days and just go and try and find the best, best talent there? Why do they just go to DNAD New Blood and just go and find the you know what they think is the best talent there? I get it that that's a, probably a a useful source, but I, I don't think it should be the only source. I think creatives can be anywhere. You know, they can be working anywhere before they're mm. brought into an agency. Uh, they don't have to have been working at another agency. I just think there's a, you, can, you can find some really interesting people to work with if you prepare to, you know, give a shit about sort of searching and being, being sort of rigorous about trying to find the really good talent and unusual talent, people that think differently, think, people that... Think different to everybody else. And, and what's your process for hiring and recruiting them and onboarding them? Do you have the same sort of a fixed process or are you quite intuitive in the way that you choose people? Because, I mean, you know, for agency businesses, it's everything. Like we're, we're talent businesses, we're people businesses. So choosing the right talent and keeping them and motivating them is essential. What's your process for doing that? Well, there's a few things in there, isn't there? There's the recruitment and then there's the retention. Recruitment, how do I say this? So we, we don't always advertise that we've got a need. There's, there's a sort of a, I suppose, a, a sphere of people that we're loosely in contact with and might be sort of chatting to 
and then as and when uh, we want to recruit, then we would go, that'd be a really good person there. That'd be a really good person there, blah, 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 whatever it is. Um, we instinctively don't really use recruitment agencies. Yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not convinced on uh, recruiters per se. Mm. And then on the retention, I think if you treat people right, how you would want to be treated, I think it goes a long way to building goodwill between an employer and employee. I'm not saying that we've got everything right over the last 12 years. You know, there are times when we've got mm. things wrong, no doubt. But I think we've probably got more things right than we have wrong. And I think it's something that you build. You kind of you build that, that knowledge and that sort of expertise over time. You know, I was probably way out of my depth when we first hired, you know, all those years ago. I'd never hired anyone before. And, and there, there I was running a business with employees. Uh, whereas now I think, you know, we're, we're a lot better at it, but yeah, I think you go a long way if you treat people with respect and treat people how you would like to be treated. I think if you go through that lens, then it's a good thing. You know, it actually, incidentally, our first ever employee was Max Cannon, who's now the design director. He's been with us the entire time. So it wasn't that shit at the start, but, um, but you know, it, we were definitely, you know, a different business then to what we are now. But yeah, just be real. Mm. Just be honest with people. It goes a long way. Love it. Absolutely love it. I could speak to you about this all, all day, Paul. You've got a fascinating business. You've built a really exciting company as well. I mean, your brand, your colours, how you speak, how you present yourselves to the world. It's I haven't seen anything like it really in, in agency land. Isn't that a shame that we're a creative, a creative industry, but everyone's really similar? What's that about? I don't. I don't get it. Mm. I just don't get it. <laughs> I don't have a. I don't. I mean, I could <laughs> got some ideas. Pontificate. Right. I guess so I, like I don't. I don't understand why. Why? Why do all agent like the vast yeah. majority of agencies like and sound really similar? I'm really boring, if I'm honest. Mm. Yeah, it baffles me really. I think it's a real shame for our industry. I don't think clients want that. They don't want the one thing when they're buying advertising or creativity as a broader term they don't want people that just look like them and sound like them they want people that are gonna think differently to them and are gonna create stuff that is memorable that that client could never have come up with themselves Hmm. so i don't understand how you if you sort of look and talk like them you're going to attract them i don't get it i've never understood that yeah we're gonna have to get you back on the show paul because i've really enjoyed speaking to you and there's a ton of questions we haven't got to but Let's get into our favorite questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. Tell us about some of your early mentors. Who influenced you, the way that you think about advertising, brand building, marketing, growing agencies? There's a few. So my first ever creative director was Giles Easingwold in that agency in Loughborough at DM. I'd, I've not spoken to him for years, but he was brilliant to me, really hard on me, but it was, it was, I loved it. You know, mm. he was amazing. And then I think from a sort of an advertising point of view, I don't think you can go wrong. I really like Dave Trott, Bob Hoffman, mm. big fan of and good friends with Vicky Ross. I really like the work that uh, Roy Sutherland does. You know, these are all people that have influenced me. And then I suppose, you know, going sort of further back than that, I really like, like for example, the work that Frank Lowe did with, uh, with his agency. Actually, there's a brilliant podcast that's on dave dye's podcast where he interviews frank lowe and it's, and it's, it's just absolutely chock-a-block full of golden nuggets of how to build a brilliant agency 
I mean, I could go on and on and on, um, but mentors, I'm not sure if I'm a mentor type. People that just have influenced me probably is probably a broader, better term. That's a really good list. Tell us about some of your favorite books. What do you read for personal and professional development? What, my CPD? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Share your CPD uh, plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I really like Blair Enzi's book, Win Without Pitching Manifesto. I think that's brilliant. I think every agency owner should read that and sort of ingest it. There's a really old book by an old agency guy from the US called Don Peppers called Life's a Pitch and Then You Buy. That's a real sort of new biz book. If you can get a copy, I mean, it's way out of print. I think it was printed like in the 80s. If you can get a copy on Amazon, I would do. It's brilliant. And it just kind of, it documents how agencies should be trying to win new business. Then I would go with Binnett and Fields, the long and the short of it. Anybody that doesn't understand the tension between short-term and long-term within advertising is, is doing the industry a disservice. And it's absolutely chock-a-block full of like hard, cold, hard data and research, you know, like stuff that I can't do, but I can, I can read and understand and then use. I really liked Ed Catmull's book, Creativity Inc., the story around Pixar. Mm. I thought that was really good. Um, I really like Amy Keane. Amy Keane, what has she written? So she wrote The Girl Who Gave Zero Fucks. Great book. Is that a novel? <laughs> it's a great, you okay. should just read it. It's good. Okay. I don't want to get, I don't want to give it away. <laughs> like, um, it's not, it's not that long. And then, you know, I would like anything by Dave Trott. So like Creative Mischief, one plus one equals three, Brilliant. Predatory Thinking, Creative Blindness, Power of Ignorance, Bob Hoffman, his blog and his newsletter is great. And all of his books. Uh, Rory Sutherland's Alchemy, we've already kind of mentioned that. Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas. We've already mentioned Dave Dye's podcast, Things from the Loft. I think it's great. I really like Mary Wells Lawrence's uh, A Big Life in Advertising. That's a good book. There's a lot of men in my list, actually. It's something I should do. I mean, if anyone's not following Vicky Ross on Twitter, then they're doing something wrong. I think she's brilliant. Who is Vicky Ross? Just, just Who is Vicky Ross? So the audience know. I mean, I know who she is, obviously. <laughs> uh, she is, she's a copywriter and specializes in advertising and brand tone of voice. She's amazing. She's, I think she might even be on Twitter as at Vicky Ross or um, Vicky Ross writes. I think it is it maybe, okay. uh, but we wrote the bland book together okay. last year. So the bland book was the satirical book that we produced where we took the piss out of and sort of held a mirror up to the bollocks that goes into brand guidelines that every brand has got. And, Largely, they all say the same bloody thing. They're all blue. They're all, you know, they all say the same vision, mission, values. They've all got the same personality, value. Oh, it's just yeah. absolute joke. But you can go on to blandbook.com and you can have a look at that. Uh, but I wrote it with her and she's amazing. I and she drinks like a fish as well, which I love. <laughs> she sounds great. Um, thanks for the, that list of books um, added to my long Amazon reading list. Uh, what do you do to keep mentally and physically fit? I, well, I live in the Alps. I live in France now. Um, you do? Yeah. So before COVID, I was traveling back to the studio in London two days a week. So I'd work two days in London and then the rest of the week in France. But since COVID, I've been in France full time in the Alps in, uh, in a town called Annecy. Wow. And so, yeah, I run up and down mountains, got into cycling. I go skiing. Wow. I have three charming but illegitimate children. <laughs> uh, they keep me on my toes. A wonderful wife. 
Uh, I tell you what, my work has definitely improved since moving here and having some clarity over like my diary. Cause like, obviously I can't go and meet people if I'm in France, you know, like I only meet them when I'm in London and, and it reduces a lot of the kind of just the, the noise that gets into your, into your diary and it disrupts your thinking. And, and actually if you can just have a clear day, you can get through so much work and your work improves dramatically. Agreed. So yeah. And, and, and it's, it's been really good for me actually. Really interesting. Amazon Prime or Netflix, what are you watching or streaming that's good? I don't understand why everyone gets well up on the Amazon Prime or Netflix. Ah, a bit of good, solid BBC. Okay. You know. All right. I don't get it. I don't fucking Netflix and Amazon. It's all bollocks. I mean, Ozarks, uh, you've got The Simpsons, you've got Stranger Things, you've got... You've got every. You've got all the great shows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The all year, of them. Like, what am I missing? BBC. What? What? what, what am I Sounds of the Sixties. Tony BBC. Blackburn. Eight o'clock on a Saturday morning. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Anyone that has a go at the yeah. BBC says it's expensive is talking out their ass. And what is it? 150 quid a year for the license fee, and the amount you get is insane. Yeah. It's brilliant value. It really is. Anyway, it there is. we go. I don't understand why people are so obsessed with on demand. I'm not saying yeah. that I have massive problem with. It. I'm just like. It's just like, why well, it's that or nothing. I'm like, nah, like terrestrial TV has been here a long time and you get a, you get a lot for your money. True. Yeah. And it looks like it's not going anywhere any, anytime soon. What advice would you give to a young person or millennial who wants to start their career in the agency world? You have to sell yourself. You cannot sit and wait for things to happen to you. You have to get off your ass and you have to sell yourself. You have to, you are the product. Mm. You know, when you're a 22, 23 year old, youngster that's coming into the advertising industry someone's not just going to walk along and give you a job you've got to fight for it you've got to you've got to sell yourself you are the thing that they buy like you said we're a talent business mm. well you've got to convince the person that's going to give you a job to give you a bloody job and that doesn't mean just spamming a thousand agencies in the uk with a cover letter and a portfolio if you're you know it's trying to nah, outthink the competition that's where i went wrong yeah you've got to sell yourself you've got to work bloody hard <laughs> Really good advice. Love it. And my final question, Paul, what do you know about growing an agency business today that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? I mean, I know quite a lot, I suppose, like anecdotal. I would do it again in a heartbeat, though. It's been so much fun. Mm. Mm. Like, I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. I enjoy it, like, today, as, as much as I did then. You know, it has different pressures now than it did then. But, yeah, I would do it, in a, I'd do it again in a heartbeat. Mm. It's brilliant. What better way to make a living than making stuff? Mm. That's, that's a lovely way to make a living. Mm. There are plenty of people that are sat in grey, big, sort of behemoth corporate, you know, monoliths where everyone's in a fucking grey suit and they're all miserable as sin and they're all stabbing each other in the back. There's so much politics. Ah, that doesn't interest me at all. Mm. Like stuff that moves people that changes people that makes them do something that gets noticed makes brands famous that's that's a way that's a much better way to spend your time absolutely love it paul thank you so much for doing this no that's no problem mate. i really enjoyed it we have been speaking with paul meller he is currently the master of decibels at meller and smith if you enjoyed this conversation and you want to hear any of the 116 episodes we've done so far, then head over to agencydealmasters.com and sign up for our weekly newsletter. You will get a summary of the best bits from each episode along with our monthly roundup. So please head over to iTunes now. We would be unable to do this show without our very own Dealmasters. Christoph Blaschek is our project manager. 
Tyler Bella is our editor. Anita Baker is our head of research. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters. This episode was brought to you by Cloudways, the intuitive one-click managed cloud hosting platform for agencies. In this four-part series, I sat down with CEO and co-founder Akib Gadit to discuss the evolution of managed cloud, where we are today, and the problems Cloudways solve for their customers. So Akib, help, help us understand, because the experts believe that the future surely belongs to a hosting environment where the end user doesn't really care that much about hosting but a lot of agency owners are still not sure which technology delivers the best experience for their clients really help us make sense of what options are available to agencies today why agencies use different services like shared hosting and and dedicated hosting and let's talk a little bit about what managed hosting is as well thank you very much for having me appreciate it so i think that the the key different the the thing that shared versus dedicated or managed versus unmanaged, these are two different things. A managed hosting can be shared or can be dedicated, or unmanaged can be shared or can be dedicated. It really doesn't matter for the end user. And it should not matter whether it's shared or dedicated or what underlying technology or architecture you are using, right? Ultimately, what matters is that, are you getting the end outcome that you want better and faster, right? For example, we, we all use many SaaS applications all the time. Do you worry about whether this application is hosted on a shared infrastructure or dedicated infrastructure? No, no, but none of us do that, right? What we really care is that our application should be always up and running. They are high performing, they are fast, it's secure, uh, they, they scale with our business, and uh, we can uh, do our job, get done better and faster. And if there are some problem, uh, the, the problems can be fixed proactively by the vendor or partner. And if you still need somebody's help, you can go to support and talk to some expert like in a few seconds and somebody will have your back there. Right? That's what ultimately you need. And I think the key here is not shared versus dedicated or, or whatever. The key here is managed. That would dramatically reduce your time to manage your WordPress, both at the application and server level. So you can focus on your core business really and, and have peace of mind and less worries, more time to invest and more money to invest in, in the things that really matter and ultimately have a better uh, outcome in terms of your business. So I think uh, yeah, this is where uh, I would say what matters and not what and not the shared versus dedicated. So managed is ultimately what matters. If you can run your WordPress or your hosting like a SaaS application says that you have the flexibility of the open source with WordPress, whereas you have all the convenience of the SaaS, I think that's where the match made in the heaven will happen and, and you will have a great experience. Uh, as far as shared versus dedicated is concerned, I mean, broadly speaking, dedicated has generally has a better price to performance ratio and generally it offers more customization and flexibility and freedom as compared to shared hosting.